Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Do I introduce you as the most hated man on Twitter? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. That would be a Colin thing to do. I'm not going to do that. Josh Young from Bison, welcome on. Thanks for having me. So let me level set this of what we're gonna gonna do here, or at least try to do here. I went on my rant, got on my soapbox about how. You can't tell the difference between a private equity fund, a VC fund, and a media company these days. You got to lead with talent. You got to, or content. You got to create this to be able to fundraise today. Everybody's doing it. Nobody's doing it. And energy, you called me out on it. You're like, hey, Chuck, I'm generating tons of content. It's still really hard to fundraise here. And I said, okay, well, let's get together. I'd actually you know, love to hear this. I'm happy to share anything I know about fundraising. And I can't remember if it was your pitch or my pitch of, well, let's just do it on the air. So we're doing this on the air. Is that the fair setup? I think so. I think I offered to come on and uh, I figured it would be a little more structured and a little bit more uh, potentially productive and on topic. I thought that was <laughs> there, the... There, we'd be more focused. Okay, yeah. fair enough. The, so here's where maybe I'll start just to give a little historical, maybe people find this this interesting, but back in the day... At a private equity firm, you kind of went fundraising every two to three years to raise a new fund. And the drill was pick a city, Austin, and you'd spend a day or two there and you'd go see Texas teachers, you know, the county municipal funds, et cetera. You'd see all the institutions there. You basically got 30 minutes to maybe an hour with each one of these folks. You had a pitch book. It was maybe 20 to 25 pages and you kind of went and did your spiel and it was almost like the movie Groundhog's Day. It literally got to the point where I would memor I would in effect have a story that I would tell exactly the same way. I'd say the same thing on each page just because you're in the middle of a meeting and you can't remember what you've said, haven't said. So I knew I said these things on each page, just keep it straight etc and then you know you just kind of did that until you filled up the fund and sometimes you were able to fill up the fund and sometimes you weren't able to but that was kind of fundraising back in the day when i was what's it like today yeah so uh almost none of those folks will take meetings with oil and gas investors generally and then especially if you're in the public equity fund space rather than the private equity fund space um, they just won't take those meetings. So those don't exist because let's say you go to XYZ city. I was just in San Diego last week for a uh, family vacation. But of course, you know, as a owner operator of a business, you're always sort of thinking about the business, reach out to the various relevant folks, zero meetings Two two people were interested, but they just weren't in town that week. Um, and that's it. So, um, it's a different world because I guess the combination of, ESG motivated divestment from oil and gas by institutions, along with, I think, a misreading of David Swenson's uh, sort of theory on capital allocation for endowments and pensions, where they think that the right way to generate excess returns is through 
allocating to index funds on the public side and then expensive private equity funds, when the reality is when everyone does that, you end up with no excess returns on the private side and substantial excess returns for active managers. So it's just a completely different world. Um, I think where we found investment has been from um, has been from family offices and sort of sophisticated individual investors who have noticed our outperformance relative to uh, relative to various benchmarks like the various uh, ETFs and other sorts of investments that people have as as options. And I, I'm going to cut you off sure. to drill down here because this is kind of getting into the guts of of what I was wanting to to talk about. How have those people found you? Do you get a phone call and somebody said, hey, I read this about you somewhere, or are you calling 10 of them and one of them says, okay, I'll read that, and then calls back and says, hey, I read your stuff, you're outperforming. How are you finding those people? Yeah, a little less on the sort of uh, active reaching out. Um, I mean, there's a lot of rules around this stuff, and you know, there's some disclaimers. This isn't, I'm not offering my fund through this and any offer has to be through you know formal documents and through a formal process um, but you know as a part of that from a compliance perspective uh, when you're when you're reaching out to an endowment or an investment consultant or a large family office you can reach out to them directly and and because they're they're qualified buyers that that's considered okay if you're trying to raise money for a fund at least in my understanding among smaller family offices and high net worth individuals, it's it's not generally the accepted practice to go and cold call them or anything like that. So podcasts, uh, TV appearances, publishing research, which is sort of how we started our conversation, which was, hey, here's sort of how you raise money or not. And so we set up this content strategy, which was, hey, let's go spend time on TV, spend time on podcasts, you know, share some of the research that we're doing internally, obviously not all of it, but share a portion of it. And then even sharing individual investment ideas, we're, we're not large enough where we're obligated to share anything unless we get over a certain percentage of the size of, of ownership of a company. Uh, but we'll occasionally share ideas partly because the thought is we have a view that we will outperform. And so allowing people to see some of what we're doing um, and some of where that outperformance comes from was the, the idea was, hey, this will make people a little more comfortable even though we're not disclosing our whole our whole portfolio, they'll get to see some of it. So that way they can sort of see, hey, yeah, these returns were generated partially through these ideas. Here's some of the research associated with them. And so the idea is, hey, this this is supposed to, in theory, get you to a point where you have a significant pipeline of investors. And the reality is, you know, it works to some limited extent, but it's not, I don't think it Maybe it's because energy's hated. Maybe it's because public equity investments are are hated. Maybe people don't like me. I'm not sure sort of where we are on that spectrum. Um, I love but, you, Josh. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. And again, like it's it's fine. I think I think like it's helpful in building an audience to be um, polarizing to some extent. I think you know if you share things that are um, consensus, people might like you or sort of not care about you, but they also just won't engage with you and so you well, can't the way really... i would say that and do you know what a q score is by any chance so we were sure. a nielsen family literally back in the early 80s when cable tv came to richmond texas the yates family was selected as a nielsen family the ratings and we used to have to write down everything we watched and mail it in i mean it was that that was the level of technology because they weren't tracking what we watched but one of the things we learned about was the q score and the Q score did not measure how popular you were. 
it had the modifier if you like someone and then it measured how strongly you felt about them and so q score intensity engagement kind of words like that i think all mean the same and i think in terms of fundraising that's the important thing you don't need to be popular with everyone you need certain people to really really love you so i i think that's i think so so i'm basically saying i i like your strategy there of of you know it's okay to be polarizing etc because i think that's right the other thing I like what you said is, you know, the Grateful Dead for years let anyone that showed up at their concerts record their concerts. You were, they, you know, most bands, almost all bands have said no to that. No, no live recordings. Grateful Dead has always said, great. People traffic in those uh, cassettes and all. Do you know what the Grateful Dead's largest selling album was? Their yeah. live album. <laughs> of all things you know when you could have because you create interest by yeah, create, allowing it you create interest so i think calling your shots and putting it out there even if you're wrong i think people respect that and uh, and like that so interesting stuff the have you found that there's a channel that works best for you in terms of you know whether it's twitter whether it's linkedin whether it's tv is there anything you've been able to glean there or too hard to tell. Too hard to tell. I think honestly, like the level of interest is so low that there's not really, you know, if you get one person that reaches out from having published a white paper or even 10 people, but you know, these people are showing up on your email list through one of these various channels or through word of mouth. The, the problem is if there's not enough of them, then you can't even do the study to figure out, hey, which of these things is is good or not. And again, the, the goal of this isn't to, I, I feel like I'm I'm whining a little too much. It's more nah. just, hey, like no, there this is this is, thing, this, yeah, there's this a theory, there's a theory and then there's a reality. And it's it's been, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, chatting with different people. I was just chatting with a fund manager right before, before I came here. Um, about it. And you know, he had a theory in terms of fund structure. He thought that if I changed it from long only, which I like because I think that there's a really good case for oil and gas stocks to materially outperform. And I think you know, the S&P 500 energy right now is about 4%. And it's even less if you exclude the two super majors that are in that, uh, Exxon and Chevron. Um, and you know, there's a good case that that gets to 10% plus, maybe it's 15, maybe 20, but somewhere in there. So I don't like shorting. His thought was, Hey, if you offer a long short product, even if you're just short the energy index or whatever benchmark, people will feel more comfortable, not necessarily high net worth individuals, but you know, endowments, pensions, whatever, will feel more comfortable allocating because they'll feel like what they're paying for is alpha rather than beta. My thought is, Hey, they have too little exposure institutionally anyway to this. So why short away that exposure for them? And then the outperformance from the strategy. And again, please see the actual performance and disclaimers right. and so on. But um, the actual outperformance has been so significant that, you know, does it really help to short a sector that you're underexposed to just to be able to get exposure to a strategy that's outperforming? Why not get both? And then if you have a problem with the fees or whatever, you can sort of figure that out. But it seems like it's not the solution for these guys is for them to have more exposure to oil and gas and to do it through a strategy that outperforms. So that's sort of my, my pushback on it. But, you know, 
I'm I'm sort of open minded to to exploring sort of different potential solutions. Um, it does seem a little odd to have to sort of deviate from a strategy that is working in order to you know raise more money to to deploy into it. Yeah, and and the other thing I've found too is generally speaking, you want to be an investor. You don't want to be a money manager because a money manager in my mind denotes, let me go look at my monthly fee income, how much money am I making, as opposed to I want to do it by the best stocks that I can for my clients. And that people have said, you know, hey, Chuck, why haven't you raised a fund since you left and all that? And part of it is I'm just fundamentally the laziest person I've met. So that, that's kind of one. But the the second part of it too is, I don't know that I have I really have a good compelling strategy for a private equity fund right now in in oil and gas. I don't know what I would say to an investor in terms of of this is what works. But so I think the drill down maybe what we're going to wind up talking about, you know, with most podcasts I know what I'm going to we're going to talk about and all and I had no I have no clue where this is going where it's going to go, but drilling down it seems like you you've bought off on I got to be generating content to generate inbounds and that's a big Colin McClellan thing. Content's your greatest source of leverage and all that. Do you think it's something in the message potentially that can be more compelling or are you thinking it's just the headwinds that are that are so great because I have a tendency to think we in energy don't say much. And when we actually try to say something, it's it's very much facts and figures, i.e. the least effective way of changing someone's mind. Is there a way to, in effect, have a more compelling story, something that connects on an emotional level way more so than facts and figures? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, honestly, like I think I've gone sort of both directions with that, and I'm not sure... I think I think one of the problems with this is you want to measure these things over months and years and not over sort of short periods of time. And it's very hard to run sort of extended experiments on these things because you sort of want results. And if you have something that's compelling, um, you sort of want the money for it right away to be able to right. go invest in it. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I've gone sort of both directions with that, with sort of sharing detailed specifics around specific investments and then showing the performance for those over time, which most of the stuff we've shared in the last few years has done extraordinarily well. I mean, even the stuff that hasn't done great has still beaten the index by a lot, has still, I mean, like the one that comes to mind that didn't work that well still has doubled since I disclosed it. It just, it was up 6X at one point and now it's a double. So, hey, right. you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not bad. And again, like I'm sure I'll share stuff that does very poorly at some point you know, I'll, I'll want it to do well and I'll just be wrong on it. Um, and I am wrong quite frequently. I mean, everyone is in investments. Sure. That's just part of the reality. Um, but I feel like I've done some of the, and, and Bison has done some. By the some, way, if you're not wrong periodically, yeah, you're Bernie lying. Madoff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So, it's just such. So I always yeah. tell people that if there is someone that has never had a quarter below the index or whatever, they're lying to you. Absolutely. Yeah, they yeah. say real boats rock. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, um, so we've done some of that and then some of the like, especially on Twitter, I'll share stuff about ESG and sort of how ridiculous uh, some of these policies are. There's the Inflation Reduction Act, which spurred additional inflation. There's the energy policies here and in Europe and Canada and various other places, which are horrible and really sort of destructive. And that, I think, gets part of um, 
why I don't really want to go short oil and gas stocks. I want to go invest in these companies. I do placements with them sometimes to help them fund drilling. I'll help with acquisitions and so on because I actually think we need more of this stuff because I think just ethically, it's the world's better with more energy supply than with less. And so I'll, I'll share that. And I guess I guess the the challenge is if you try to share sort of stuff that's like more maybe emotional or ethical or whatever, along with sort of facts or hey, here's performance, here's you know the details around a fund. I think it's possible maybe the message gets garbled, but um, and and there is some value in sort of being very consistent and just sharing. Hey, here's this set of companies we've talked about. Here's facts about this sector and, you know, just sort of consistently doing that sort of approach. Um, but, you know, different different uh, implementations of that in different mediums. Uh, so Twitter, maybe it's sort of more mixed, uh, bison newsletters and so on, maybe just sort of the facts and, and sharing sort of industry progression. And again, just sort of not seeing what you, I would have thought, eight years into running a strategy that's outperformed. I think we're up as of the last numbers, like 90% net of fees versus the PSE, sort of the small cap public, uh, the, actually that, that index is down uh, <laughs> 69% uh, right. net of the, the costs of that, of that ETF. So a very, very big difference. Um, you'd think that that would just, if, if someone wants exposure to energy, which maybe the problem is people just don't want that exposure, right. You'd think if you're an allocator looking at getting that exposure, that that would be very compelling and sort of seeing how it's built and getting that sort of regular update would lead to fund inflows. And, and again, it's not that we're not raising any money. It's just you would think that would be overwhelmingly compelling. And, and in many other sectors and with many other funds, that does seem to work. And, you know, I think it's interesting to get your take on sort of where you think that's yeah. that's missing. Yeah, yeah, and and again, the thing I like about this podcast is if there were a great answer, I'd be raising a fund and be wealthy again, and maybe go buy a jet again. But I'm not. Um, the so I've been thinking a lot about this though, and I think I think ultimately you have to play on kind of a, a base emotion and not recommending this, but just as we run through them. You know, fear is a very effective motivator as a base emotion. I think potentially the environmentalists have done as good a job as humanly possible of scaring the world of climate change, et cetera, our inability to adapt the end of the world and all. I don't think it's ethical to use fear. I just don't. I'm not going to do it. But if you think through that, I don't know that you can even make a case to an investor to scare them into buying energy. I mean, Energy is what, 5% of the S&P 500 today, somewhere around there. A CIO is not going to lose their job because they don't own energy. So I don't know that you can kind of scare folks into that. And so then you start going through. Well, here, let's let's play on yeah. that just for a minute. Okay. So I'll try. Okay. And again, yeah. I agree with you. I don't, I don't normally do this. It's not yeah. my way at all. I'm way more interested in sort of win-win type situations and in, hey, here you build this rather than yeah. here you should be afraid of it. I think that the fear aspect is when there are outperforming sectors, especially when they're a small portion of the index, a few people do really well and make their careers out of it and others miss it. Almost everyone else misses it. And so I think the thing to be afraid of would be 
if you had the opportunity to invest with Michael Burry ahead of the big short and you missed it, right? You don't get fired for missing it necessarily, but if you're the chief investment officer at the, let's say, 50th largest endowment in the country, and you want to be the chief investment officer at a top five endowment because you can make like five times as much money, you'd have way more resources, more prestige or whatever, or you're the number two person at a leading endowment and you want to be a chief investment officer somewhere, the risk is if you miss a niche allocation to a niche manager, that's not tech, that's not healthcare, that's not a giant portion of the market. It, the, I think the fear is that you miss your ability to get that promotion. The flip side is there's always career risk in any sort of allocation. I think that's part of what keeps institutions from investing, whether it's pure ESG, whether it's fear of underperformance. Um, but I think I think the fear strategy would be, hey, you might miss your career-making allocation. And the crazy part is you might miss that where you're actually not taking career risk because if you allocate you know, a half of a percent of your assets that you're responsible for, you might end up having that amount of outperformance such that you're able to, you know, if you did that with Michael Burry or you did that with a few of the other folks that did the big short, for example, again, very small percentage of the overall market, right? CDS, it's not part of the stock market. Allocations were tiny to it. Um, you could have ended up really progressing in your career. If you're at a fund of funds, you could have gotten a big payday or at least suffered way less drawdowns than other fund of funds did in that time frame. And so I think that's the fear argument is you like uh, a significant fear of missing out on something that's already proven, right? We already way outperformed and are showing sort of where the next set of things are, where there is that opportunity for people to actually So I'm going to turn this on its head because... I would say what you just said as uh, emotion number two, I was going to discuss and I was going to call that greed. And basically, I don't know that I have an ethical problem playing on someone's greed. And you're going to the smaller institution saying, hey, you want to beat the rest of these folks? You want to overexpose to energy and then start building the case and we can go to the how we build the case in, in just a little bit. I actually don't think, I don't think that's unethical. If you tell somebody they're going to lose their job if they don't do this or babies are going to die or whatever, that to me is fear and that that's wrong. But I mean, you really believe energy's going up. So I would have no shame in terms of telling somebody kind of playing on their greed of, hey, you ought to be overexposed. I've seen probably... In my time in energy, you know, whatever it is, close to 30 years, I've seen three effective ads that I think really kind of play on the emotions and, and to the to what I'm talking about in content and, and playing playing on that. The three are one energy transfer did the most recent version of it, where it's these things disappear that are made out of petroleum products. I think that actually works because it makes someone in effect kind of laugh, but it educates. So it plays on that. Uh, I think the second one that has been effective is the Biden pointing, I did this to gas prices. I think that made people laugh. It educated and worked. The third one, and it plays on greed, and I actually think it was ethical when they did it. It was very effective for them. Natural Gas Partners published 
an ad in the oil and gas investor that says we have created more millionaires in the energy business than anyone else. And it listed out all the portfolio companies they had sold or whatever. And people read that and said, I want them backing me, you know? And so I actually don't think there would be anything wrong with playing on the greed and the pitch is, Hey, if you want to have the top, top job, bigger institution overexposed to energy, and this is why you're going to beat it. And then we can go through the energy pitch because I think the good of humanity pitch, which I truly believe, I mean, your life expectancy just doubles when you start burning hydrocarbons instead of dung and wood. It just does. That's where the whole like ESG, global warming, the world's going to end argument fails, right? Because all of these negative consequences are tens, if not hundreds of years out potentially. But then there's the reality of the consequence, which is if you produce less coal right now, then there's less coal. I mean, we saw this last year, people starved in Sri Lanka because they ran out of energy because they were following this ESG path and there were, there were starvation and there were people without access to uh, cooking fuel. Yeah. No, grand, grandmother dies if, we, if energy prices are expensive in the winter. And yeah. I, I hate to say it that way, or so the I, summer I here in Texas. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to play the fear card, but it, it's just it's true. It also, if we buy energy from bad guys, wars happen and stuff like that as well. So I mean, it's not just prices; it's also where we we get the uh, the sources from. So, you know, I kind of believe all that, but I mean, playing on greed. How do we make that case to somebody? And I'll start, and I'll kind of make up these numbers because I don't know, but. I mean, if you walked in to me, just kind of, and I'm a smart CIO, so I know investing, I don't know particulars, walk in and said, hey, this 15% of the earnings of the S&P 500 is this sector, and it only makes up 5% of the value, that has to, that has to be favorable over the next five to 10 years, right? Right. And I think that's true about energy. And then I think we're up to 15% or so of the, the S&P 500, you know, because I always believe you need to say something and be able to say it in a sentence or two. Now, it may take 30 minutes to go through all the details with somebody smart, but you need you need that in your hip pocket. Yeah. So I was just pulling up. Sorry for, for pulling no, up my phone. Pull it up. Um, we have a chart. Uh, and again, this is not an offering. I'm just trying to yeah. get advice yeah. or whatever and trying You're to not. see if this fits. Um, so uh, the last page of our presentation, it's a value of a million dollar investment over a three year period. And um, if you invested in Bison in May of 2020, at the start of May of 2020, with a million dollars, and again, you'd have to have been an accredited investor to do so. Net of all fees, expenses, commissions, et cetera, that million dollars was worth $8.6 million at the end of May 2023. I can tell you there were zero new investors in Bison, <laughs> zero in May of 2020, because everyone was scared. Similar to now, frankly, the people are scared. Did you see my uh, Chuck Yates Needs a Wife podcast? Um, I have not yet. I need well, to. Well, the, uh, one of the things I talk about there is you know, kind of the week after I got fired, I was sitting there and, you know, the way it always works when you get fired from a private equity fund, what they always say is, we'll buy you out of your LP interest. And if you can't agree on valuation, they say, well, at least we'll freeze your account because we recognize you wouldn't have been that big an LP if you're not calling the shots. You don't mm -hmm. have the management fees to fund that. Kane said, no, we don't do that. I'm like, 
they go, we have a GP problem, Chuck. That's an LP issue. And I go, well, this LP would not have been this LP without being the GP. But right. anyway, so I'm sitting there with this huge amount of capital that can be called. And so I'm looking at my personal balance sheet a couple of weeks after getting fired. And I go, okay, on paper, I'm all right. I don't have to get another job. I can kind of do what I want. I got to go sell the plane, but all right. It was fun while it lasted. Then I went, all these LP interests and the cane funds, let's say they're worth zero. Minus $37 was right there in oil. So that wasn't a ridiculous thing to, to look at. And I go, all right, my net worth's still okay. I'm not going to have to go get a job. If Kane called all of the capital they could call under all of the funds and it was worth zero, all those LP, I was worth $82,000. So I lived until I was able to sell my LP interests uh, last fall. I lived basically as if I was worth $82,000 because fortunately Kane didn't do any deals in that time. And so there were no real major cash calls and that was fine. And so. Everything was great. I feel like this explains scary. this explains your nice holiday party because uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. let's get a food truck. I sold. I'm not awesome. forty. I'm not poor anymore. So, but no, that's that's why I was not showing up with a million dollars in May of 2020 because yep. I was sitting there going, "Look, we're going to revert to the mean." So, so Bison up uh, a million turned into 8.6 million. If you put money in the S and P, you think, "Hey, stock market crashed because of COVID. It started to recover." Things are going to get better. Your million turned into 1.4 million if you put it in just the S&P 500 uh, SPY ETF. If you put it in the S&P 600 Energy Index, which is not, you don't have the commissions and fees from PSCE, but basically same idea. So small cap energy ETF, right? You'd think you'd have this big win on a million dollars in just after oil went negative, May 2020, right? Like oil just went negative, yeah. just rebounded. And it might have been 10 or 12 bucks. Um, yeah, it was, it was it under 20 for yeah. sure. Um, you're only at $2.6 million. So you're at 8.6 versus 2.6. Stunning difference. I mean, I, I was amazed. I thought in 2021, after we were up 377% net, I thought there'd be like, Financial Times articles, Wall Street Journal. The a Financial statue Times, built somewhere no, to you. <laughs> I don't want a statue. I just thought like this was pretty cool. I mean, we basically had our big short moment, moment and nothing happened, right? We were mentioned in the Financial Times, uh, secondary to uh, Crispin O'Day, <laughs> who you know was up uh, up a lot less, but you know right. they felt like he was famous, so they wanted to do an article right. about him, and they mentioned that Bison was up um, a lot, and people didn't care. And that was the moment for me. So when oil went up a lot last year, people were like, you have to sell. I mean, a number of people got mad at me that I would not sell there and not my, not right. my investors, but other energy folks. There were right. people on Twitter with big followings who decided I was evil when I was not selling there. And the, the real answer in terms of not selling there was a combination of valuation where the companies didn't get to a reasonable mid-cycle valuation where it made sense to sell. If they were private businesses, you just wouldn't sell for the price that they were trading at in the public market, at least the ones that I owned. Um, the other answer was, look, people aren't, they just don't care. They still don't care. You sell when everyone's excited. You don't sell when people don't care. And there's a there's one other, there's this chart I found actually. So one of the great things about Twitter, um, you know, there's lots of not so great things, but one of the great things about it is you get access to just absolutely incredible um, you get access to incredible uh, thought leadership and um, just brilliant ideas. Some of the best 
content creators in the world are on Twitter sharing their content because you know that's how they get sort of the widest uh, right. widest audiences. There's a, a great uh, Twitter contributor. His name is Brian Feroldi, and we put him at the top of our last white paper, um, which is we show a chart going up where, where it says, can't wait for a pullback. And then afterwards, going down, it's too risky to invest now. Yeah. And again, like people, people have written books about this. They've done articles. They've done long podcasts and whatever. But this just small image is so powerful when you think about the psychology of doing nothing, which is what most people do when there are great opportunities. And, you know, the psychology around energy investment so far has been on this full negative track up and down. And my thought is that there's a wonderful opportunity, especially on the way down, there's a great opportunity to go buy because no one's buying. There's tons of stuff that's gotten just absolutely thrown out. Maybe not the stocks that Warren Buffett's buying or the stocks that are on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or that, you know, 100,000 people on Twitter are talking about. But there's a whole set of companies that are at absurdly low valuations and there's a great opportunity to go buy them in a in a frame where everyone has this I missed it mindset or it's a too risky mindset. And when you look at tech, it's sort of been the opposite of that, right? On the way right. up, everyone was like, oh, this is never going to end. And then on the pullback for tech, it was, hey, this is uh, the future and it's now a discounted opportunity. And I mean, you look at companies like, I'll pick on Carvana. I don't have any exposure to it, but it looks like it's insolvent and it's up hundreds of percent off its low because people are believing in this as the future. I mean, it's an insolvent used car sales business with a broken business model <laughs> with, I believe their management had some sort of historical regulatory issues. Um, and you have people believing in it in large funds with big allocations uh, going in and raising additional money to go buy this stock and this company that's right. basically insolvent. Um, and yet those same allocators are not interested in energy stocks at two times EBITDA, one times EBITDA, um, you know, 20% plus free cash flow yields, huge discounts to liquidation value um, after after there's been this pullback. So let me throw two things at you because you got me thinking about this. So I think one of the <clears throat> single most effective ads of all time was the old iPod and it was a thousand songs in your pocket. Boom, I get it. You know, it's simple. It's that it's that kind of concise, concise message. Another great job of marketing was Nolan Ryan. And I believe this, the, the details of this may be wrong, but the big picture spirits, right? Went eight and 16 and led the National League in ERA. And but went eight and 16 and he was a free agent. He was fighting with the Astros. The Rangers said, why don't you come up to Dallas and meet with us? He camps, he takes a tour. They took his previous year, the 8 and 16 year, and they said, here is what you would have done if you were a Texas Ranger. On this day, you lost two to one. We scored seven runs that day. So you would have been our starter. And they calculated that his record would have been 24 and six. And they said, you would have won the Cy Young Award. You know, you would be that much closer to 300 wins. You're in the Hall of Fame, all that. And I always hate when you when you look in the rearview mirror on stuff. But they did that 
where I'm going with this is if you, instead of saying bison went from million to 8.6, if you are actually able to, whether it's a CIO over the whole portfolio or whether it's the private capital manager, if you were able to say, my suggestion is that 12% today should be allocated to energy. And I know that's way more than where people are targeting. Some people are probably going to do you would have had this of a return across your portfolio. And if we could make some reasonable assumptions and show a 9% versus 7%, that's your job. You, if you did 9% instead of seven, look at that. So, so we, we, you, you know, and, and, and frame it in that, in that way so that the person could go, you're right. If I had 12 months of 2% outperformance, I could get a better job. I like the idea a lot. We pulled together something sort of similar to that, but not as directly framed. I do try to avoid giving specific investment advice, even sure. to institutions, because we're not really just running a fund rather than trying to advise them on sort of the yeah. broader allocations. But um, there's an endowment that reached out, which is exciting and hadn't reached out uh, when, when we agreed to <laughs> to do this <laughs> a month or so ago. But it's still, you know, it's early stages. Uh, we spoke with them once in uh, June of 2019. And so we pulled together a similar chart to that uh, three-year trailing chart, um, but it's starting in June of 2019. We didn't send this to them. I may never do anything with it. I might just reference it in a call that we're going to do with them soon. But over that time, since that time, uh, Bison's up 191% net, and the S&P 500 is up 43%. And the S&P 600 energy is down 2% and various other energy indexes are down uh, or, or have materially underperformed. And so the argument there is, hey, guys, uh, we don't know exactly how much you allocated to energy around when you were talking to us. We don't know what your current allocation is to energy, but there was this enormous opportunity to invest at the time we last spoke and it didn't go anywhere. And what we'd like to do is not have the next four years be lost because we think that there is a similar or maybe even better opportunity now than there was in June of 2019. And here's the foregone return. So essentially what you're saying less about, hey, you should allocate this amount versus that amount to energy, but here's the foregone return. And you can figure out for yourself, would you have allocated 20 million or 100 million or whatever to the strategy? I don't know. I can't tell you that. I'm not sure what's right for you. But anywhere in that range, one, we've shown we've been able to manage that size of a separately managed account or that size within our fund. Um, and here's the enormous excess return that's been missed by not having allocated in 2019. Let's not make that mistake over the next four years. So first step to failure is probably having me as your moral conscious. But as as your moral conscious for for right now, at least, I actually don't have a problem if you come in and you say, I think an institution should be 15% allocated to energy today because you believe it. I'm okay if people tell me that, you know, you can say that's not my job. I don't want to do it. I'm okay if you come in and say it if you really believe it, which I think you would. And I don't know if it's 15% you believe or 20%. I would do I would do some due diligence. So if I, I'll just pick on my alma mater, uh, Rice University, I would potentially look at Rice. And if you believe any institution should have 15%, maybe Rice should have 10. And you should say that normally I'd say 15, but 
so many of your donors are energy people. You've got more exposure there than you realize outside the portfolio. And they would look at you and say, yeah, you're probably right. So I do a modicum of work on that. But I don't think there's a problem with you telling folks how much uh, energy they should be exposed to because you believe it. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, actually, you're ironically, a thought, you're a thoughtful guy, and quite frankly, if I'm managing the Yates family office as the CIO, I actually would like to hear why. You know, you you come in and say, "I think it should be twenty percent." Here's why. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I mean, one that's a very difficult question, and I think it's always easy to answer in retrospect what percent you should be allocated to different things, right. and it's very hard, I think, on a prospective basis to know that sort of exact number. I think generally speaking, these institutions are massively underinvested in energy. Rice is the exception. Rice yeah. and maybe also University of Texas, uh, where their exposure is so large from their endowment, where Rice, I believe, owns large tracts of mineral lands similar to University of Texas, uh, the university system, where they actually probably shouldn't have exposure yeah. <laughs> outside yeah. of that because they have a large percentage of their total assets exposed. It's fascinating so, when you get talk, and I'm a big, huge Allison Thacker fan who's the CIO at Rice, so cannot give enough props to, to Allison, but it's fascinating to hear her talk because she, she says I'm in the forever business mm -hmm. and that's my job in the endowment is people leave me a, a bit of land and I literally potentially will own it 300 years from now, you know? Yeah. And she thinks in those terms and it's really kind of fascinating because most people think quarter to quarter, maybe year to year, but she's like, I'm in the forever business. Rice is going to be here in 300 years. See, maybe it's my problem that I would go to Rice. And uh, I think we met with them a couple times years ago, but and they sort of shared their their allocation problem because of the large uh, mineral lands that, yeah. that they own. Um, but I wouldn't want... It's not that I think that people should go allocate disproportionately beyond what I think is appropriate to bison or to energy right. in general, it's that I think there is massive underinvestment, massive divestment yeah. where there is this opportunity. And, and I think that should be part of the case you make when you talk to someone. We'll set rice aside, obviously, they're of a different bird. If we're going to talk about rice, so real quick, John Lawrence, who's the energy investor there, is probably as sophisticated an energy investor there is in an endowment pension fund. He's really sharp and great, great guy. We'll set rice aside. I actually think that's you know, because we're playing on the greed of a CIO or a private capital uh, manager, and we're going to somehow look at his or her performance metric, and they're going to go, wow, I can get a better job if I have that. I think it's okay to say you should be more allocated to energy. Because again, you really believe that. And I believe it. I mean, I would feel comfortable saying it, you know? So anyway, just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I think, I think, that's a good angle I haven't really thought about. I, I had been thinking about it more that generally any allocator I'm talking to should have more energy exposure. And without quantifying it, I think they probably should have exposure to bison. And so without that exposure to bison, they've missed this incredible outperformance relative to their general energy sector exposure. There's only a few funds that have done what bison has done or better, and they're all in the private equity space where um, you know, generally past returns may not be indicative, but particularly in private equity where, especially in oil and gas, the dynamic there has shifted substantially and is probably partly what you're alluding to in terms of not being sure where you would go if you raised money today in, in private oil and gas. On the public side, I think it's a little bit different because the dynamic is always shifting in public, but it's always the same in the sense that 
If you can go buy a business at a fraction of its liquidation value, at a very low valuation multiple, where the value is growing through uh, observable activities that have already been happening and are likely to continue, you're statistically likely to outperform over time. And so there's sort of this formula So I'm going to cut you off real quick because I want to make a point here is I think you need to make that point more simply and if you could do it in a story. And I'll make up this story just to, and because I know this is this is somewhat true. Is you know, hey, we've seen this story before. Tobacco became uninvestable over this decade. Uh, it wound up being the best performing. It was up 10x. The rest of the stocks were whatever. And if you had two or three more of these simple examples from history of where something. And whether it's 15% of the earnings, 5% of the market value, just where you can find some analogies just to give something, something, give somebody something they could relate to. I think that is more powerful way to say that than what you just said. Yeah, I think you see there, what I'm getting at. I think there's yeah. two separate things, right? There's what you're what you're talking about is an allocation to energy. Yeah. And then there's the if I let's say I'm sold on it, which again, yeah. I think many people aren't. So I think sure. it makes sense yeah. to think about selling on energy and then selling on a particular mechanism for getting energy right. exposure. Yep. And so I think I think where I'm mostly focused is on the mechanism for energy exposure right. because I think I think it's just there's so much value when everyone's given up and either not investing at all in the sector or just allocating to private equity and then to index funds, which is the institutional approach to energy. It's either divest from oil and gas or invest in index funds and private equity. When everyone's done that, there's a wide open field. There's almost no professional investment management where they're actively picking small cap stocks. So my answer to you before was, here's, here's why small cap public oil and gas exposure on the active side should do well and why the past returns might actually be indicative. The tobacco thing is, I think, the energy sector answer, which I think I need to do a better job with also, and frankly, probably should lead with, right? Where it's like, hey, you hate this. (laughs) You think this is going away, right? Great. Buy it. (laughs) Well, and and here's just history of private equity and kind of where, where I drew on that. In effect, Ken Hirsch and David Albans of NGP created the private equity oil and gas model. And the first, I don't know, 10, 12 years of their existence, they went into the private capital bucket and they didn't sell NGP. They sold energy. Here's why you need energy, because that private capital bucket, in effect, they were competing against buyout, biotech, venture, all the other things that the private capital bucket did. And they had to compete on energy. It was only then when the allocation became set that you went in and said Kane versus NCAP or Quantum or whoever, and it was fighting about you know each individual manager. I think we're back to the world where you got to go fight for energy first. So I, th- I think that probably needs to be added to the pitch. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. I mean, going in and saying, you should do us instead of private capital because you get pissed off. Guess what? You get your money back. Whatever your your redemptions are better than private equity. Yeah. Well, it's not just that. I mean, the the dependence. Th- th- there are some key right. There's liquidity questions around private capital, but there's also other aspects where a lot of 
oil and gas private equity is it's really growth equity investing. And growth equity investing is very different from value investing because in growth equity investing, you're deploying capital in the hopes of building a enterprise or building an asset that's um, you know worth more incrementally more than the capital that's been put in in order to build it, hopefully by multiple times. And sometimes that's successful and sometimes that's not, but it's most similar to venture capital. Public equity investing, particularly with a value framework, is completely different. It's more about making your money on the buy and just being careful enough on purchasing something at a large enough discount at a price where no one would ever agree to sell it to you if they were a private market participant and actually owned that private business. Um, if you buy cheap enough and you do a good enough job of selling when when share prices go to a point where they're more rational and you do a good job of holding while share prices are irrational, um, there's sort of excess return that can be generated from that. The reason that difference matters so much is that there's a whole set of conditions under which private equity works. And absent those conditions, private equity doesn't work and can potentially fail quite gloriously. Public equity investing works over sort of a much broader range of conditions. The upside might not be as large across sort of general public equities versus general private equities, but not just the liquidity, the actual outcomes end up being sort of um, more tilted to the positive and sort of more consistent. Let me give you the insider baseball way to pitch that when you're talking to CIO or whoever. It's what these private equity guys have done to incentivize the management teams have given these massive back ends to all the management teams. Literally, these management teams above 2x, above 2.5x will get 50% of the profits. Guess what? When you're at a 50-50 split, i.e. you're above 2x, Management is drilling a $10 million well, and that's $5 million of their dollars. Guess what they choose to do? They go sell. And any private equity firm that tells you, oh, yeah, we control the sell. No, you don't. If management walks in and slides the keys across the table, guess what? You're like, all right, sounds like we're selling. Yeah. And so I, I think you're exactly right that private equity has been more venture capital. I mean, we, we owned it. We were early stage assets in oil and gas. The problem is venture capital works with a basket and 10Xs and 12Xs, and you just fundamentally can't get that in oil and gas private equity because you've incentivized the management team at 2X to start thinking about selling. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and so so that that's your insider baseball pitch to the CIO. That's why it doesn't ultimately work. And so then you know what private equity firms do at that point? They go, wow, this volatility in my returns don't work, doesn't look very good. We had 12 companies. We're going to merge them down to six and we're going to merge all the companies so that we have 1.8 to 2.2 times our money. So the fund is a 2x. But uh, at the end of the day, they just created less volatility by merging the companies. Every private equity guy says, no, we merge the companies to save GNA and the synergies. No, you're building your track record. I mean, you're, you're getting rid of the volatility when you show the number of deals. I have seen a private equity firm, firm's returns for all the companies, and they don't have companies listed, but I have a press release where they announce, you know, Fund 7 has created this company. And you're like, well, where is it? And you find footnote, and you go back 37 pages, and you find out they were merged in. 
Yeah, I think um, I think there's a bigger thing that happens than that. And again, that's that's what happens from the private equity fund manager's perspective. Right. From the allocator's perspective, there's this gross misunderstanding of what's going on. Uh, I think it's perpetuated by investment consultants, but I'm not I'm not exactly sure um, where private investments are considered stable and public investments are considered volatile because they get public statements monthly because there are share prices and you mark to market and private equity does not mark to market. So you had people thinking that their investments were of a certain value in, let's say, June of 2020, where their public equity investments were marked down 80% from the prior year. Their public, their private investments might have been marked down twenty percent. Right? Of course, it was nonsense, right? Like the public ones weren't; they, their intrinsic value wasn't down eighty percent, and the private ones were likely down way more. And so, mark to market is wrong, and mark to model is wrong. And the reality is that the intrinsic value of businesses is sort of a complicated thing to calculate. But um, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, CIO bonuses are based on volatility, and if I can get four marks a year versus three hundred sixty-five marks during the year. That's going to be better for me. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think that's a really important consideration. It's been a reason why I think allocators have preferred private equity and private credit to public equity and public credit. But I think when you suppress volatility, you end up with negative outcomes over time. And I think the reality of getting to see monthly, hey, here's what the mark to market is. I don't think the market is accurately pricing these stocks at any given point. But at least there is some. Um, there is some outside factor, some controlling factor in terms of what those marks are besides what my personal belief is or whatever my, you know, auditor is going to let me get away with. Yeah, no, that, that would be the, uh, the holy grail of money management. If you could somehow own public stocks, but publish four valuations a, a year. Yeah. Disconnected from share prices. Yeah. Right. Which is, I mean, actually I've seen this happen sometimes where private equity funds will, divest to public companies and then not always mark their uh, values to the share price volatility. So that's been very interesting to see. It's not that common, but you you see it sometimes. Um, But it's like, hey, if they can do it, I mean, I've never done that. I have no interest in doing that. I'd rather just, you know, there's a reality and you just deal with the reality. And sometimes it's really painful, but I just just never, I never merged companies and I always showed the complete track record and and you got fired yeah i got fired exactly and people would people would look at it and go there's a lot of volatility here and i'd go i'd go yes but think about it this way you know particularly when you look at fund six i have silver hill i have hrm i have adventure that are all crushing it where would you want me to spend the next dollar this company that i lost half my money on i could have spent more money there and probably gotten it to break even or do you want to go drill another well in the Delaware Basin where Silver Hill's drilling an 80% rate of return well? So guess what? I just sold that. Just let's let's cut bait and let's go and let's focus the money. And I think that was one of the things that kind of was getting accepted out there of, hey, it's okay so long as the amount of money they lose is small, small enough. That's a defined part of the the business strategy. But yeah, it's it's a it's a real thing. So so on that note actually, it's very interesting in the public equity investment world, there's a lot of pressure against what they'll call concentrated investments. 
But the reality is if you manage a portfolio effectively, like you're describing, there aren't that many companies that are going to generate 10 X's for you. And if you can allocate additional capital to a company, even if the stock price has gone up substantially, if it's likely to generate a better return for you than buying some other thing <laughs> that's down, you should do it. Yeah. And you know, I think that's something that people actually institutions don't seem to have as much problem with that. Uh, fund of funds and uh, certain others don't like it as much. Um, but that's something that's I think very important to be able to hold stocks as they go up and not necessarily sell them just because they've gone up. And then being able to actually invest more into businesses that are working really well. It's it's very hard. It's that first part of the psychology. So it's easy to talk about the second part where you know it's uh, too risky uh, on the come down. But I think the I, I missed it on the way up. Psychology is really tough to to overcome that and to go in and put in more yeah. money at a higher valuation. Yeah. So if we were gonna, su I'll try to summarize our conversation today, and you see if I got it. Is I would think that potentially, you know, pushing, pushing um, more just allocation to energy could be something to go think about if I were you. The other thing is if I can translate Bison's performance into something more specific to the person sitting across the table to me, I, a la Nolan Ryan, you're not going to be eight and 16, you're going to be 24 and four, or 24 and six, whatever it was, and you're gonna win the Cy Young, I think uh, potentially that could be helpful too. And then, and this is the hard thing, because I have no idea where to go about this, and it's probably tough, it, we're obviously not gonna come up with it talking about, but literally if we could just have the punchline of a thousand songs in your pocket, if you could have that, I, I do think that helps. Because the one thing I will say that we really haven't talked about is what I found was, the simpler I made the message over time, the more money I, people just got it easier. And it was, and, and I had a friend send me a 30 page business plan to go raise money for some stuff. And I told him the same thing. I'm like, look, simple, simple, simple as I got, I mean, my deal was literally we do early stage assets in oil and gas and we have these engineers that can apply technology we see all over the country to certain places quicker than the industry. And that's why we do them better than anyone else. And it was like, okay, I get that. You know, it was that simple. Now you could spend two hours going into the detail of how it actually worked. Uh, so anyway, I told him he came back with 15 pages I said, all right, cut it in half. So we're on our iteration to his credit. He's gotten it down to one page and I go, that's going to help you raise more money the simpler it is. Let me, let me try that. Yeah. And then I don't know, I'm, I'm literally just making it up right now. Yeah, and tell me you what should. You think. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's almost no active managers in publicly traded small cap oil and gas anymore. And by being an active manager, focusing on this, we're able to find stocks that are not just cheap, but also have embedded assets and other, other catalysts that allow the stocks to do better in downturns and do better in up cycles. And so we're able to actually find cheap stocks by doing the work and being there when almost everyone else isn't. I'm a professional basketball player playing with high school kids. I'm in the, uh, what is it? The kiddie pool? Yeah. <laughs> the only adult standing in the kiddie yeah, pool? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's borderline creepy. Just with my 18-month-old in the kiddie pool. So it's a yeah, but no, I mean, I, yeah, no, I like that. Literally, if you could, if you could say, 
if you could say something to the effect of something with a lot of sophistication in a in an amateur amateur-ish type market i think if you had one sentence like that the light would go off yeah and even make it non-energy and make it less numbers and facts of you know free cash flow and that sort of stuff it's just you know i'm uh i'm trying you know it's hokey to say I'm Einstein working with high school kids or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the thing is. I think if you can figure out a punchline to that, I think a light goes on. Yeah. This has kind of been cool. I had no idea where this was going to go. I think you should do more of these. I think you have a lot of wisdom you've accumulated over the years and, uh, you know, wear a pink T-shirt and uh, <laughs> tell people they're, in suits it's like the, the old girlfriend, joke. The girlfriend likes me in pink, so I've found okay. myself wearing more pink I mean, shirts. they do make uh, pink uh, button-ups, too, I hear. Um, How dare you say that? <laughs> I know, it's terrible. Okay, I'm going to fess up to this, and mm-hmm. I can't believe I am, but you and I are, you and I are becoming pretty good friends, so I'll go ahead and fess up. So I am getting on a plane tomorrow to go to London. I'm going to meet the girlfriend's parents for the first time. I spent three hours at Saks Fifth Avenue yesterday with a personal shopper because she didn't think my wardrobe was appropriate to meet her parents. And I bought new clothes. So I will be dressed appropriately for the girlfriend's parents. Wow. Yeah. There you have it. I don't know if I would have gone to Saks to do that. That's a... Uh... That's not good for London. I was not given a choice. Oh, I see. I see. This was was not your decision. (laughs) I I see. I see. I'm I'm way behind. I really need to watch your um, how I met. uh, What is it? Chuck Yates. Chuck Yates needs a wife. Needs a wife. And and I'll give you the disclaimer just real quick. The first half of it is unfortunately my sense of humor peaked when I was 13. So it's silly. It's goofy. It's even kind of crude to some degree. That's just me. But the second half is actually pretty serious. And so anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, what, what got me thinking about doing this was your interview with uh, uh, Ken Hirsch, right? The um, uh, co-founder of, of NGP. I, I really liked your your interview. I thought it was super interesting. And, you know, we we did a podcast interview. And then also I came by when you did your marathon. Uh, Fuse-a-thon to, to help, or whatever. Yeah, yeah to, help support, to help support you at the end of that. But I think... I think there's just things that you learn by doing well, doing something for a long time. And uh, it's pretty cool to get your perspective. So thanks for thanks for doing it. Oh, absolutely. Did you, did you ever see the movie Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray? I did, yeah. There, the scene in there where he's talking about, I'm God. Well, not like the God, but a God. I think God just knows so much because he's been around so long. There, there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely. Cool.